0: Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to a tune by the title of The Softer Side. And on the CD, in parentheses after The Softer Side, it says, For Chelsea. And the gentleman on the telephone who wrote and recorded that tune is Ed Hasser, And he is going to explain to us what it means by For Chelsea. Hi, Ed. Hi, Todd. How are you? I am well.
1: Um, so why does it mean for Chelsea? Yes. All right. Um, each, we have, we have three kids and each of the kids wrote a song out of a song, I should say. And, uh, Chelsea's was always Chelsea morning by Joni Mitchell. Yes. And, um, but her two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother, um, had songs that I had written, but I said, but I can't improve on chelsea morning so that was always her song but she decided she really wanted we call it sibling parody (laughs) she wanted wanted the song that i wrote because her brothers had a song that i wrote and so as it turned out um, um i put something together and it fit into her um actually her 29th birthday as it came as it turns out but we had seen um she likes the movie, uh, what's it, Love Actually, and there's a Joni Mitchell song, song in there called Both Sides Now. And um, Chelsea Morning's kind of, a you know, the raucous side of things. And um, so I said, let me try something doing the softer side, uh, mm-hmm. te- keying off that Both Sides Now thing. So um, I just happened to sit down and was fooling around, and it's an open G tuning and um something came out <laughs> and after a few weeks i was able to actually put it together and get it to her in time for her birthday
0: well i was going to ask you how long it took you to to more or less complete it and you said a couple of weeks that to me that is super fast because it takes me forever is it something that you worked on every day for hours and hours or was it just you pick it up and play it for 5 minutes and go ah that didn't work i'll try it again later
1: so it's, it's the latter. It's pick it up and try it again later. And so it isn't two continuous weeks or several continuous. It's about, you know, two to three weeks worth of time over two to three months. Oh, I got you. Okay. <laughs> and then, uh, trying to, uh, usually it comes in pieces and then trying to get the pieces to come together and then make it like it's. That it's, that it's pleasant to hear, it's not too repetitive, it's not too, um, too long, and so on.
0: Now, the uh, what guitar did you use when you recorded that one?
1: Um, I did use the, the Martin D35, that's my Open G tuning guitar, and so that's the one I would have used.
0: And, um, how, and how did you record it?
1: Okay, um, I have... Um, well, I've gotten a Presonus, you know, audio box unit. Plugged it into. Uh, at that time, it was an older computer. I now have a dedicated one. Uh, but and in those in that time, I had a Seymour um, Duncan acoustic tube, mm-hmm. which I would put in the sound hole, and then I could plug that into the instrument part. Uh, and the Presonus has two inputs, and so for this for the quote vocal input. I just had a um, condenser mic, um, I guess it's an akg or something, and so I put that on and so it's a it's got a direct feed off the um, off the uh, the pickup and then the the microphone feed.
0: Now, how long have you been, well let, let's actually ask it this way. Okay. How old were you when you picked up the guitar the very first time?
1: Um, I figured you would ask that and I was trying to remember, <laughs> I think, um, it was around 14, about 14. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it, you know, you're <clears throat> had some friends from school, um, grade school and they played and they kept saying, y'all learn how to play, y'all learn how to play. So eventually, um. I talked my parents, I guess, into buying me a you know a cheap beginning guitar, and then we'd play with them.
0: Now, do you remember what that cheap beginner guitar was?
1: No, I do not. Um,
0: and I would imagine, since you don't remember it, you don't still own it.
1: That's correct.
0: You know i I don't own the first guitar I had either, but I am surprised when I chat with people for the podcast how many of the performers actually still have in their possession the guitar they learned on at age eight or 10 or 15 or whatever that it just never ended up going anywhere else huh so i'm with you
1: yeah i can't say i do have the second guitar i ever got
0: oh tell, tell me what that is
1: that's a harmony sovereign jumbo oh yeah i got that when i was probably a senior in high school and um that, I That remember I was working you know you work jobs then in the summer and, and after school and weekends whatever I remember saving up and saving up and saving up and then ordering it and calling the store every day come in yet and then going to the store when it did come in and you know laying out the money you know a couple of tens and fives and ones and quarters and dimes, and nickels to find. It pennies to get it paid for
0: now how much was the harmony sovereign at that point in time
1: i think um uh, i was looking that up and uh, i think it was around 60 dollars, 65 or something like that is, is and,
0: isn't that amazing when you compare it to what we can purchase today now having guitars come from overseas uh, mainly from korea or china or indonesia The prices Mm -hmm. have come down, and they make some outstanding um, instruments, as you as you well know. Mm -hmm. But the Harmony Harmony Sovereign at that point in time—I mean, John Sebastian played a Harmony Sovereign. Many people did, and that was their main guitar. And yet, today, when we think of it, it's like, oh yeah, that was a cheap guitar, but it really was almost state of the art at the time.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. It was for me the the entry level of a quote good guitar. Mm In those, ty- in those days, it was, you know, Epiphones or Gibsons or certainly Martins, you know, guilds. Guilds. Um, but they were much more expensive. So, but the Harmony was just, you know, sounded great and it was affordable.
0: Now, is it still in good condition or is it a guitar that you just take out and look at once in a while?
1: I have it. Um, it's not in the great condition, the... Uh, the the, you know, the finish is gone from where
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, the, um, the guitar always had a problem with uh, the action being too high. In fact, th- what they did is they actually pulled, and when I first got it, I was saying, hey, you got to do something about this. And it actually has no, um, you know, the plastic bridge piece, all the strings go over.
0: Yeah.
1: That, there is no plastic piece. What it is, is a, is a piece of metal bar. And that brought the action down enough that I could play it without bleeding my, getting my fingers bloody. (laughs) And and so there it's it's been, it's been repaired a couple of times on glue. The the saddle piece came unglued, the pick guard came unglued, and they repaired it. And it probably needs a a head reset or, or a neck reset or something, but.
0: Well, it, it's, it's not alone. The, um, my go-to repair fellow over in Percival, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Marty Fair from Fairbuilt Guitars. I asked him one time, cause he repairs any guitars. He's a Martin, you know, certified Martin repair technician. Yeah. And I said, what brand is the one you have to do the most repairs on? He says, oh, that's easy. It's Martin. I said, well, what <laughs> kind of stuff do you have to do? He says, well, the worst years for Martins were the 1970s. And you know, to me, I think I purchased my Martin. I had a D twenty eight, which I never should have sold, but at the time I sold it because it was kind of the thing to do in order to buy another one. And uh, but mine was, I think, a nineteen sixty eight or nineteen sixty nine. So, but I remember having little inton- intonation problems, which is the main problem with many of the nineteen seventies ones. But he he would say, you know, I do lots and lots of neck resets. So that's a common problem with older guitars. The wood just expands and contracts and moves over time. And that's just what ends up happening. So the harmony's not alone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I thought about, you know, should I get it repaired? It's like, chances are the cost would be so much that I don't have that much of an emotional attachment to it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So how long did you play that one before you transitioned into uh, another one?
1: um i had that one until see if i got that in 68 in seven years because i got the first martin which i still have in 1975 um that was out <clears throat> i fin- finished college was in the workplace for a couple years and had saved enough money to you know after the car and everything
0: to, mm-hmm.
1: to, to buy the guitar
0: well, that leads me to a question where Where did you grow grow up?
1: Baltimore. I was the um, first of my family to be born in the Baltimore area, and the only one left, I like to
0: say. <laughs> and the uh, did you attend college in the Baltimore area as well?
1: No, I did not. Um, I actually went to Manhattan College in uh, New York City. It's mm-hmm. actually
0: And what did you study?
1: Uh, I'm an electrical engineer. Oh,
0: okay. And that's your, that was your career until um, retirement?
1: Uh, pretty much, yep. Um, I uh, actually had a, it was a special course because I was interested in software. And like, <clears throat> the software was done in the mathematics department, so they put a special program together for me. Uh, so, But I came back down to Westinghouse, which is in Baltimore, there at the airport. And that's where my first job was, and that's why I was back in the Baltimore area.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you've only recently, I think, moved to the Frederick area, haven't you?
1: Yes. Yeah. We downsized. We were over in Carroll County for 30 a couple of years, and I wanted to downsize yeah, since I was retired and um, looked around the East Coast, uh, Asheville, Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, eastern Tennessee, there's some really beautiful country over there. And, um, and we ended up <laughs> settling in on Frederick.
0: Now, was there something that you liked about Frederick that you didn't see in, like, eastern Tennessee or the Carolinas?
1: Yeah, um, I actually, it put together kind of a set of criteria, first from our travels. It said, you know, if there's a city, <clears throat> that's the county seat that's got a college of some sort in it and has roughly 30,000 30,000 plus people in that range up to 100 or so um that that's a, a happening place and we wanted to be in town we wanted to be able to walk places and so that's what that's what we were looking for um around and um we had been coming to frederick uh, interesting enough uh, you know, Brewer's Alley and, sure. and Phil Bowers.
0: Oh yes, absolutely.
1: Well, Phil and I were working together when he decided to, um, with his family, go and and do the uh, take the plunge and actually open Brewer's Alley. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we with the kids would often come. To eat there it was, it was it was good the first year they had the best root beer the kids loved it <laughs> yeah, but the beer was so good that apparently they had they needed the capacity to, to, to brew the beer and so the root beer didn't last um, but we had been coming and so we liked Frederick um, and Frederick I mean, I met this criteria thing and it was actually close enough to our friends in Carroll County that there's still connections mm-hmm. um, and uh one day actually it was a it was a f- Friday evening we were walking on Market Street and yeah we were noticing all the families pushing their kids in the strollers and walking and doing and said you know people live in this town they don't work here and then go home and so it's dead at night
2: mm-hmm. people
1: live down I said this is great so we would, side to start looking around and see what we could find.
0: Well, the the way I have got to know you, and it wasn't until we had a chance several weeks ago to sit down and chat for for a couple hours at the Gravel and Grind Coffee House that uh, I actually had more than hi Ed, how are you? You know, do you need a mic or what do you need for the open mics? But that's how I got to know you because you are a very avid open mic attendee and performer.
1: Yeah, I, I enjoy it. That's one of the, um, oh, I guess, pleasures, if you will,
2: mm-hmm.
1: of being retired. And I mean, since so I so I played the whole the whole period um, from being fourteen on. It's just you know, as you get family and life comes on and so on, it's it kind of takes the background, but it's always been there. And if anything, it was kind of a release. It was like. It's, it's my space. I can go in and I can grab the guitar and I can kind of let go of, of all the other life stuff that was going on. Um, and so it was always there. And uh, um, we got to, to Frederick and, you know, ran into the song circles and, and heard about the open mics and then said, well, let me try it.
0: So had you not done open mics prior to uh, coming to Frederick?
1: No, I, I tend to be um, you know, stereotypical engineer introvert, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. And so, um, didn't didn't really play for public at all, except once, way 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 back when, literally, uh, one I, told, I think the story is one Sunday night, um, I played one song at a coffee house in north of Baltimore. Um, And that was the only time I ever did that alone. And um, other than playing at church or whatever, there wasn't anything else, really.
0: Now, you had mentioned that you had friends when you were 14 who convinced you to pick up or get a guitar and play. Did you ever play with your buddies, you know, in high school and things like that?
1: Um, We actually went to three different high schools. So we just happened to live kind of close together. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there was uh, so we would play with each, you know, play together just around each other's house, but certainly not at not at school or anything. Um, For me, I I ended up meeting some people in the high school I went to who played, and um, so we did a little bit, mostly Simon and Garfunkel Mm -hmm. things. and just when those albums came out, we would. If we had some time after school, we might try and play, get together and play a little bit uh, just to see, you know, working out those songs and you know, just exchanging information.
0: Now, have you all always been primarily because when I hear you play and you, most of the sound files we're going to be hearing today, you finger style or finger pick. Um, have you always been a, a finger picker or did you strum at some point and just kind of mix things up?
1: Well, you know, you always start on strumming. Um, and so it was basically strumming. And then um, the group, uh, th- there's a, a scouting connection behind them too. And my friends um, were in scouting and they met, and I was a little bit a teenager when they kind of convinced me to go in. But uh, there was a banjo player there that was really the, the leader of the, of the gang. And uh, he actually had a Vega long neck, original one. Wow. Um, if you know that one, and so obviously you know, the banjo's got a fingering style to it, and so so there's always that going on. And then around that time, I think um, um, "Freight Train" the song came out. You know, mm-hmm. so everybody had to learn how to finger big "Freight Train" because that was the thing you did. And, and, between that and Paul Simon, I started getting into some trying to fingerpick.
0: Now, now, when you play instrumentally, fingerpick, mm-hmm. do do you read tablature or notes, or do you do it purely by ear?
1: No, I um, I need tablature. I can't I don't read music uh, anymore, and I use tablature as much as I can mm-hmm. uh, to get me to learn the song and uh, and if um more there's a couple of songs recently where there was no tablet i couldn't get the tablet because the artist didn't present it and so uh, one of the teachers that i met here um instructors that i used here in, in frederick told me about a um program called uh, transcribe mm-hmm. and so i could if i could get the the, the sound file and then i could play it and then slow it down and it's like, yeah, and, and pull it apart. Um, I could do that. And that was more or less, you know, by sight and ear because there wasn't a tablature. Um, but mostly I try try to grab the tablature and then go from there.
0: But on your own pieces, like the softer side, and then uh, we have one that we're going to play, maybe not the entirety of it called goofing off with major seven. Is it, Do those tunes come up originally from just what you and I would call, or some people would say doodling on the guitar, just, you know, not paying attention really just kind of doing fingerings and all of a sudden something goes, Oh, that sounded pretty good. And then it's trying to remember how to do it and get muscle memory going, then take it from there. Or do you have a preconceived notion of what you want to do on the guitar and then just figuring out how to do it?
1: No, it's the first. It's definitely, you know, doodling around or whatever, and suddenly something happens, and hope you can remember to recreate it, <laughs> and and then uh, keep it around, and then um, see if see if something doesn't gel.
0: Well, in the in the tune goofing off with major seven, mm-hmm. was that was that an impromptu recording, or had you been fooling with that and decided one time to put it down to tape?
1: Um. <clears throat> That was, that song was probably from the early seventies, mid seventies, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's when I put it together. Um, and then I just kept it around and, and I don't write the stuff down. It's just basically, uh, you know, either I remember it or hope maybe that I put it on tape somewhere so I can replay it and try and, and recreate it. Um, but that one I kind of always played uh, off an of horn, so I remembered it. And then uh, finally it kind of polished itself up a little bit, and I said, oh, that's tr- looking for instrumentals, let me, let me put that one on.
0: Now it says with major 7, first of all, what guitar tuning are you starting with? Is that in standard pitch?
1: That's standard pitch, yes.
0: And, and what, what does it lead off chord-wise? uh A major 7. Okay, one of my one of my very favorite chords of all time. It's I, I call them girl chords because they're mm-hmm. so pleasing to listen to and being a heterosexual male, I think women are pleasing to look at or girls are, so that's a girl chord to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, let's play a little bit of that so people can can hear it. Is that good for you? Sure. All right, here it is. This is goofing off with major 7. Off with major seven with Ed Hasser and Ed. which guitar were you using for that one?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um.
0: Well, let's let's back up a little bit. You have the um, the old Harmony Sovereign. You've got the Martin D thirty five. What other guitars? Because I know many of the guitarists who are listening to the podcast. They always get a kick out of what guitars people own and, and play with.
1: Um, so I got the D35. After that, I bought a Guild 12 string, which I've since sold. Mm-hmm. And never really used it much. Um, so then the next guitar I got, my wife bought me for Christmas was a, uh, D28. Cause I've always wanted one. And that was in 2014. Um, and it's the vintage model. So it's the... They don't make it anymore, but it's a kind of a cross between the old pre-war Martin bracing and the standard D28 bracing. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I, I was there at the store, and the Martin rep was there, and he bringing all the various variations of D28 out, and you could tell there was a little difference, and I like just a little more of that bassy boomy aspect. So, uh, so I got that, and then. Um, the last guitar I got was a PRS uh, electroacoustic um, acoustic. That's that's the lifesaver one I call it.
0: Now, what what do you mean by lifesaver?
1: Well, as it turns out, you know, when you get older and so on. I ended up um, twice in the past five years, actually. Um having a, a nerve issue in my left hand and and not being able to to use half of my left hand for a while. Um, <clears throat> so sort of bring bringing little fingers. And so you you just can't play. Yeah. And um and, you know, there was some surgery and it, it's been repaired and it's you know recovered. In fact, the interesting thing is the surgeon said, you know, I told him I was playing guitar, and that's how I was measuring the the um recovery. He said, um, couldn't think of a better set of physical therapy than to do that.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, so, um, so that continues and continues. Uh, but <clears throat> um, I've always had light strings on the T-35 because of it's, its has various issues. And I was using medium strings on the Martin, the T-28. And, uh, of course, the action was always difficult with the harmony. And so I was having trouble being able to play. And I had always wanted a PRS guitar, having visited the factory and, and, and seeing their um, their signature models, you know, the ones that are way out of my price range.
0: <laughs> I think it's way out of the average person's price range.
1: But, um, but then they had this model, it's made, actually made in China, but then to their specs, and then they finish it, and, um, and besides looking beautiful, um, and having that, you know, that winged, um, inlay, it, um, it has an action that's unbelievable, and it's just a tiny bit smaller than the other guitars in, in length and in, in neck width, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's not like playing an electric, but it's like all the good parts in electric action on, uh, an acoustic guitar, and electric guitar is just... Uh, I need tactile feedback, and I you know, just don't have that with a, with a standard electrical. But this one was like the best of both worlds, so I could actually play things um, that I was having trouble with on the other guitars. Uh, and also made it a lot easier um, because it's got the electronics built into it, so when you go to an open mic, you don't have issues like I was having, where sometimes the pickup wouldn't made up, properly electrically with the, with the um, open mic setup. Mm-hmm. I started using a pedal just to help bridge some of those problems. Um, because electrically it seemed to fix the, fix the issue and I never did figure out what that was. Um, and so it was just made it a lot nicer to, to, to play at open mics.
0: So do you find yourself playing the PRS most of the time now?
1: Um, I tend to play in terms of um tunings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so um I um I keep the guitars in well the the, the the D35 is always in G tuning or something close to it. And um the harmony is almost always in Dad Gad, but I don't use it that much. And then the other two, the Martin and the 28 and the in the PRS, I'll switch tunings back and forth. Um, so when I was having a lot of hand problems, I was using the PRS pretty exclusively. More recently, um, hand strength is coming back, and so I started using the, the Martin just to get back into it. Uh, but typically, if I go out to open mics, I'll use uh, the PRS because it has the most versatility.
2: hmm
0: well, I was watching a YouTube of you on the fame uh, Facebook page today at Elk Run, and I I don't remember which tune you were playing. It's one of the what we call the, the finger style standards that are out there, but I just don't remember which it which it was because I only listened for about 30 seconds.
2: Mm-hmm. The
0: um, But the, you were playing the PRS and that had I think it had a little bit of reverb you know, whoever had set it up and it sounded really, really good. So to find a guitar that you're comfortable with playing and then also comfortable with the sound, especially when you're playing out, whether it's an open mic or an actual performance is more than half of the battle. There's way I look at it because I have guitars that I, I, yes, I play them around the house, but I primarily use those as my performing guitars. And then I have other guitars, which I love them and I play them at the house but they never quite measure up from a live standpoint performing. They, to everybody else, they probably sound really good. To me, they either don't measure up to the ones I use as a performer, or it could be that I'm not as comfortable playing them, say, standing up, rather than sitting down on the couch, if that makes any sense.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: So which is your, is the PRS your most comfortable guitar? overall? Yes.
1: especially if I'm standing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just, whoever designed that must've had me in mind or something. <laughs> it's, just, it's just really nice.
0: Well, in that, that video, your right foot is on one of those little things that the classical players use.
2: Yeah.
0: And I guess that's to raise the right leg. So the guitar sits more at a certain angle. When did you start using one of those?
1: Okay. <laughs> Story. Funny story, I guess. Um, do, you, do you know Appalachian Bluegrass down in Catonville? Oh,
0: of course, yes. Emory.
1: Before that, it was known as Nelson Nodes. Oh, is that right? <laughs> and and uh, there's still, I mean, the family's still there, just changed the name. But um, I went there in the, in the mid-70s, late 70s, something like that. Probably late 70s. I wanted to learn how to flat pick, play Black Mountain Rag like, Doc Watson,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so I <clears throat> went to the local bluegrass store, which was now El- Appalachian Bluegrass in its old name. And I said, "Hey, I want to learn." And he said, "Sure, we got this instructor. He can he can show you that." And uh, I remember his name. His instructor was Jack Uttermole, and he was a student at Peabody. And um, so I go to meet him for that first night, and I said, "I want to learn how to do this," and because flat picking was bad news to me. Um, and, um, he said, okay, well, have you been playing? I said, yeah. I said, well, play me something you play. And in those times I was using finger picks.
3: Yes. Okay.
1: And so I played my, my, one of my standards, which was Angie, Angie, this is how they say it. And, uh, thinking he was gonna be yelling at me about my lazy, lousy left hand. And you know, so I played it and he kind of looked and said, hmm, we need to do something about your right hand. And so instead of coming out of that first lesson with a you know, a how to flat pick in the Doc Watson style, I ended up coming out with um, christopher parkening's classical guitar method book one huh and um i forgot to mention, i still have that that guitar by the way it sits in cat gathers dust because i don't play it at all anymore um and so when i so i started playing and that's where the foot, foot stand comes from of course i use it on the long foot now than what typically we do um but I still had it, and um, I used it. That's where it comes from, and I, it helps me with the, uh, holding the guitar in the current styles. Um, but that, that classical music thing just you know, I got rid of those finger picks and never had them again. That was just wonderful, learning how to, how to pick.
0: Now, was, it, was the transition from the finger picks to bare fingers difficult for you?
1: um well first of all you had to learn how to trim your nails and shape them and all that good stuff mm-hmm. um but after that it wasn't so bad um well, that was about the only hard part um he has some great exercises for how to do it and, and what that classical also did was added the third finger i mean typically to there I just played thumb and two fingers and so the classical added the third finger and that makes a big difference in in being able to do things. Um, so, uh, so, did so he kind of, did
0: he eventually teach you how to flat pick, or did that kind of go go away?
1: You no, know, uh, you no. Know, we ended up. I was ended up doing classical guitar lessons uh, for a while, and then um, after I retired, um, before we moved here to Frederick, I went back to Appalachian Bluegrass and spent a couple of years. Uh, trying to learn how to flat pick. Um, I wanted to play a song I'd heard Beppe Gambetto play, and there was a song I wanted to do for a kid's wedding and uh, which uses a, a flat pick. and uh, so I said, hey, teach me to I went back there a um, the great great teacher, Charles Rowe, and uh, you know help me get this song down and then but in the meantime, let me go back and and try and recover pick up from where I left off however many years before of learning how to flat pick. So I tried that for a couple of years. Um, and I've decided that that's not my style. It just didn't didn't jive.
0: Well I I'm, I'm with you. You know I I respect and I'm awed by people who can do it. And I, I know yeah. many people locally who do it actually very, very well. And, of course, the, we see YouTubes of the the masters at it. But it's I, I'm with you. It just... I don't know if it's a dexterity issue with the way I... You know, with my right hand or whether I just don't get it. But I have difficulty with that. So it's it, it just doesn't work for me. So I'm with you.
1: Yeah. I mean, to me, I somebody says well play a little lead guitar type thing and so i i have no affinity for that mm-hmm. Can't do it and so flat picking i guess is kind of along the same same vein it's that, I don't know, it's, that it's that lead guitarish type of a, of a mindset and i just don't have it <laughs>
0: Yeah, if you get the chance, um, Ed Barney, who um, is out of the Hagerstown area, used to be the Shepherdstown area, and he runs an open mic in Shepherdstown, and I think also still in Hagerstown on one night of the week, or one day of the week, yeah. and he is a when I he's more of a bluegrass style picker, mm-hmm. but he's also a singer songwriter, and uh, but he incorporates that style into his singer songwriter image. Um, he would be somebody who'd be fun to see because he's one, he's a phenomenal performer, but how he incorporates flat picking into what mostly, most people would consider like the singer songwriter, which like is mainly strumming and maybe some light finger picking. So he's, he's very interesting. When I asked him, um, I said, well, how do you approach the way you play? And he said, well, it's math to him. I said, it's math. He goes, yeah, it's all math. And he's not a math major that I know of, but that's the way he thinks of the fretboard. Now, do you know scales and all those things? Like if somebody says, can you play a note, a G note, would you, because me, no, I have to, you know, I can play G chord, (laughs) but don't ask me where the G is, um, unless it's an open string. And then I have to remember which tuning I'm in to do it. Do do you know and understand the fretboard or are you more like I am more of a, a by ear player?
1: I think I'm somewhere in between.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I can I can certainly find the note on the on the That's okay. Sometimes I have to think a little bit. Uh, okay. But um. But but yeah, I, I, I have some affinity for that. But mostly it's um. Well, I call it first you know first positioning type things. Then mm-hmm. and, and the other end and. and and not too much up up the neck.
0: Now, I'm, I'm curious, did you ever play bass?
1: No. No, never done that.
0: Yeah, I have tried. And the way I look, the way I, if someone says, Have you ever played bass? Like, well, yes, a little bit. And they say, Well, how good are you? I said, Well, I play bass the way I play tennis. I'm a nuisance. <laughs> <laughs> I know just enough to get in your way. <laughs> But the um, Rob Hinkle from Iliami, who runs a, well, he used to run a wonderful open mic and he's starting to, again, as the world opens back up. And I was having a discussion with someone else um, who knows him really, really well. And uh, we were talking about his, cause he has a very unique pyrotechnic approach to acoustic guitar or guitar playing in general. And this fellow said, you know, He plays like a bass player does. He says, in fact, I asked him, did you start out as a bass player? And Rob said, well, yeah, I did. How did you know? He says, that's just trying to describe how you play. You just approach the guitar as a bass player does, which I sort of understand, but I don't really, because I'm not a bass player. But evidently, that's why I was curious, because you do play so wonderfully, fingerstyle-wise. I was wondering if you'd ever played bass.
1: Yeah, no. That
0: at all. Now did you ever have difficulty because I have the for years the 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 low two strings when I would finger pick never got used. For some reason my thumb never went there. And it was a concerted effort to get that thumb to start using. I had to learn that alternating, you know, boom, 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 in order to to, to learn how to use that those lower. Um but did you always use your thumb and, and first the two fingers, then the three, always using the, the thumb for those low three strings, or was it something you had to work at?
1: No, that was, that was pretty much always there from the beginning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I have to admit that the, one of the other things, this classical thing taught me was about the fact that there are, you can, there is a bass voice on the guitar
2: mm-hmm.
1: as well as the treble. So, you know, <clears throat> there's this, there's this bass line that goes and accompaniments in you know or augments the song even though your fingers are mostly doing the uh, melody
0: well in one of your tunes and I'm trying to remember if it was softer side or goofing off and I think it was on softer side but I could be wrong as I was listening to it before we, we, we I called you I was thinking gosh it almost sounds like he's playing bass notes after playing in other words you recorded it twice with as, as if it were two guitars. But as I listened to it, I thought, no, I think he's doing that while he's playing the other stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, in general, especially like in softer side of the open G, um, those two bass strings most of the time are open and they'll just occasionally I want to hit. One's a G note, one's a D note, just as there's that fifth interval, I guess it's called. And sometimes I use the G, the augment. And sometimes I use the D just to make something different.
0: Now, how did you arrive at an open G tuning as opposed to an open D or some other?
1: Um, if banjo, remember I said way, way back when it was the, the, the banjo leader, um, I knew open G or the, the tuning we used on the banjo for the most part was G. Mm-hmm. So I learned banjo a little bit um, and certainly a lot of bluegrass done, was done in that G tuning. And so I was aware of it and um, so, so I guess I tripped over it on um, guitar wise with um, well, the Tom Rush song, mm-hmm. um, and then seeing Judy Collins play um, Chelsea Morning for the first time. And see, that was in a G tuning. That was actually, I was close enough I could watch her retuning the guitar when she did it. I said, and then looking at her finger rings, I said, That looks like banjo finger rings. So that must be open G. Man.
0: Now, didn't you tell me? Excuse me, didn't you tell me you have a banjo? Yes, I do. Actually, (laughs) two. What do you What do you own?
1: Um, I have this 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 old 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 piece of junk, cast aluminum from Japan. And the only reason I still have that one is because Carolyn Hester. I don't know if you know of her, but yes, yes. Okay, well, she was at school at Manhattan College playing. And and when I was there, it's the whole end of the folk era, but she actually autographed my banjo. Huh. That's the only reason I have it. Um, And then um, as I again retired and was learning banjo, I've always liked open back, uh, you know, old tunes and old timey stuff, and um, like to use what you you call trailing, I guess everybody calls it claw hammer
2: Mm -hmm.
1: in general. and it's just occasionally like to pick it up and play and wish i could do it better but i uh, just haven't found the time to go back and, and uh and improve that but yeah i have one it's a it's a um a replica of a white lady it's made by eastman mm-hmm. and uh again i had that and i was pairing it against the gold tone and back and forth back and forth and ended up with this one and it's kind of neat because it's it's the white lady was a transitional, so it has a, um, a a bell ring in it, like the bluegrass managers do, but it's open back, so it can be
0: it can be loud. <laughs> well, most of the mid to high end Eastmans I've either owned or played sound really astoundingly good for the 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 what you pay for them. Yeah, and i had looked because i have a deering good time banjo five string the in it and it's more than fine for what little i can play on it although Mm -hmm. what i don't like because banjos to me were always dark wood and the good time is is maple so it's blonde wood and it just to me it just doesn't look like a banjo so Mm -hmm. i was a couple years ago i was i was uh Perusing the internet for different, you know, affordable five-string banjos, and the one that really kind of struck me was the one you own from Eastman, and but I never pulled the trigger because I kept thinking, you know, you know, I could spend this amount on a banjo that I'm going to play maybe once or twice a year, or I could take that same amount and put it into a guitar that I play all the time.
1: Yeah.
0: So, what led you to purchasing the Eastman?
1: Um, like I was, I. <clears throat> Was hoping in retirement to to pursue the the banjo again, and um, was looking for an open back banjo, and that was again, like I said, affordable, um, and was decent. And um, basically, came down to two in the in the price range. It was you know, this one, and, and um, pretty sure it was a gold tone. Uh, and it's, it's enough years ago. I don't totally remember, but I was just between the two of them going back and forth, back and forth. And said, nah, I think I kind of like this one better, just a little better.
0: Now, did you um, purchase it mail order or did you purchase it, say at Appalachian it, Bluegrass?
1: You no, know, I was at Appalachian Bluegrass. I mean, I mean, there were all the instruments were there to try. So, yeah, I actually had a, uh, I had bought a, um, bluegrass style banjo you know with the resonator and all that and um decided i really that really wasn't going to work for me and so they actually just traded it in with those guys to to buy the uh the open back
0: now when you play the open back your eastman do you just play it as the way you purchase it or because some people stuff like a pillowcase or a little uh, cushion or something between the brace and the head to kind of mute the sound what do you do
1: I have a state-of-the-art volume control, which is a pristine, unused diaper. <laughs> uh,
0: a cloth a, diaper, not a disposable. I'm assuming.
1: The cloth diaper. Yes.
0: <laughs> now, how did you end up getting a pristine diaper? Did you go out and buy like a six-pack or something? Or
1: right, exactly. Um, and I use them. Um, we I mean, use them to like um, polish the guitars and
2: mm-hmm.
1: polishing cloths and so on. And it's just I happen to have one left over. So.
0: Now I, you know, the, I'm I'm old enough that I remember as a kid that diapers were cloth. There were no disposables, and I can, I can remember helping my mom because we had a clothesline. And I grew up on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and we had a big clothesline that probably had anywhere from four to six lines because we had, you know, five or five to seven, depending on the years of of family members. So there was lots of laundry to do. And you just prayed for windy, sunny, fairly warm days, of course, to dry quickly. But my job a lot of times was either to hang it or to bring it in. And I can just remember, uh, especially when my sisters were infants of how many of those cloth diapers were hanging on that line at any given time. Uh, So that's an interesting one. I've heard people putting socks in there, pillow, you know, like I said, small cushions, everything. But I've never heard of someone putting a... uh, That's really, that's cool. The key
1: thing is pristine and unused.
0: (laughs) Now, and and I know why you put that in there, but people who are mainly listening who may not play either a banjo or a guitar, or they're mainly a guitar player, explain why you put that in.
2: Okay,
1: well, the, the banjo has a like a drum head on it okay and the way the banjo projects its music the sound is uh, the strings hit the bridge and the bridge is right lay, lays right on that drum head okay and then so that's where all the all the sound comes from so it, and there's actually a brace in the back of the banjo um, that runs behind that drum head and so there's a space where you can shove something up there, like the diaper or sock or whatever, pillow, um, where you can dampen the uh, drum head. And so <clears throat> the vibration, it doesn't vibrate near as much. So that makes it softer, but less loud, I guess, is the right word.
0: So you use it mainly the way I used to when I, the one time I purchased a drum set back in the 19, gosh, this was probably the ni- early 1970s. it it was a very cheap drum set, but I lived in an apartment where you couldn't make a lot of noise. And so I would put towels over the drum heads to mute the sound. So I'm, I'm I'm assuming that you're dampening the sound to make it less volume. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Yes. It's just, it's so again, because of that, that um, bell ring
2: Mm -hmm.
1: in there, it is very loud um, and that, of course, that was the purpose. Um, I guess I call it transitional because I guess in, in prior iterations, the open back is relatively soft. And when they started playing in bands, at least as I, as I understand the story, uh, you couldn't hear it. And so when they put this this bell ring in that really upped the volume. And then if you go to Bluegrass, once now with the bell ring and the resonator, they they project.
2: Extraordinarily well.
0: I would imagine using that diaper as a dampener. It also uh, the note decays faster. Is that so? You don't have the 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 continuous ringing of a, a string. So it, there's there's quicker decay, which also lends it to that kind of softer sound. I would think an old time sound.
1: Yeah, that, that, there's definitely that aspect to it.
0: Now, did you find it difficult to learn the claw hammer or the you know frailing style?
1: Apparently, judging from some of the workshops I've been to, I, I I didn't find it difficult to learn it. Apparently, I didn't learn it well. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, no, it's I mean it's so easy. you know you only gotta count to four to play it. <laughs> and you know you, if you look at it, you know you, it's, it's one, two, three, four. One, you pick a note. Two, you do nothing. Three, you strum. And four, you play that funny string with your thumb, and so you know three quarters of the of the, of the style is 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 the same for every song, hmm. and twenty five percent of it's doing nothing in the basic note, you know, <laughs> the basic strum, and so um, so I found it okay, and I guess using my my nail, or I use my middle finger, I've always used that. And so between that and um, then switching to guitar with using the finger picks, it all just fit.
0: Now, have you played your banjo in an open mic?
1: Uh, yes. Once at the, when Dublin Roasters was there, mm-hmm. I wanted to play that day and I nothing was working on the guitar for me. And I hate doing things over and over again, you know, like play different songs when I go to the open mics is, uh, I said, I can't do this. So I, uh, went, way, went way, way, way back. And, um, there's a song, Shady Grove,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a traditional song. And I have a guitar arrangement of it in, in Dad Gad. And, uh, I said, um, I first learned this song on the banjo. I pulled, pulled the banjo out and did, uh, Shady Grove on it. And then, um, uh, Greenland whale fisheries, and uh, and then I said, when, "Here's how when it went from the band, the Shady Girl went from banjo to guitar. Something happened and it changed. And here's the, what it sounds like on the guitar."
0: Now, when you perform for open mics, and we're taping this on April the fourth, and you're going to be doing the I guess it's the Idiom Brewery open mic tomorrow. That's
1: what I'm planning.
0: Okay, now. Because you said you don't like to repeat songs. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about choosing, because I'm assuming it's two songs, that's generally open mics. Once in a while, if it's not a well-attended one, they'll let you do three, but generally it's two. How do you go about choosing which two pieces you're going to perform for, say, tomorrow night?
1: Um, Lots of different ways. It was kind of interesting because the first time I went there, I think I just went there to listen. I understand how the... How it worked, and this guy was talking about. It was a it was a, uh, a young dude played keyboard, and he was talking about he walked the Appalachian Trail. And I said, "Hmm, that reminds me of a song that I know. There's a connection with the Appalachian Trail." I said, "Well, if I play that song, then." Um, there's a couple other ones that I think I would like to try to go with it. It seemed to fit in the same, same genre. So that was like, <clears throat> just something came up and Gay said, here's a suggestion. Um, I actually played the, the um, um, Shady Grove one, I think, last week. Uh, and I think I was, was I decided I wanted to play that, and that's in, in Dad Gad. And I said so there was another Beppi song. That was also traditional that I had been learning. So let me try that. So, kind of put that together. Um, like tomorrow, I was, I've never played the D35 there at Idiom and I wanted to try it. You know, and you know, um, so I was going to play, I'm tending to play uh, actually Chelsea's song and um, one or two others, probably both sides now, the instrumental version. Um, And just kind of like, is there an inspiration that says, let me try this? Um, Or it's like, I haven't played these in a while. And usually I have, because of the open mic, songs and sets of two or three that that tend to go together.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so I keep them on handy just in case, like, if it's typically two and you get a third one, well, here's this third song that I don't have to retune the whole guitar to play and all that kind of thing.
0: now are you a nervous open mic performer or, or? absolutely,
1: absolutely. <laughs> even after all the these several years of playing it still get butterflies um and it's, it's you know, you'd think it'd be over and it's certainly a whole lot less than the first time I ever did it up at Dublin Roosters. I think that was when Dr Dave asked him, do you want to I said i can put it up on Facebook live I was like, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> what <laughs> yeah um. now as you're as you're playing because mm-hmm. uh, you know and, and I get butter, I get butterflies, I actually get more nervous in front of other guitar players, like if I was going to play a brewery or a winery, I'd be a little bit nervous, um, but halfway through the first song i'm totally fine at an open mic or a songwriter event where i'm performing and other performers or sitting in the audience listening and watching me i'm usually nervous as a cat and i've been playing professionally well i say profession well professionally since the gosh the early 1970s you would think that after all that time the nerves would have settled down they are for a, a performance where i don't know the people like i said at a winery or something like that but in front of other people but do you find that the butterflies Lesson or go away as you get into that first piece, or do they stay for both of them?
1: No, they'll, they'll go away. Yeah. Um, in fact, that was one of the lessons uh, I, I did a little um, workshop with Beppe,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: he talked about he says he just got this go to song. And he says, If I go to a place that I've never been to and I'm not sure what I'm going to do, I know this song Cold. So I'll start with that just to settle in mm-hmm. and um and so i kind of use that i'll use the first song is usually something that i'm very very comfortable with just to get through um, in fact when i do i have a, actually a set of two songs that i do for um my first open mic and the first venue and an open mic yeah and i'll play these two songs because uh, hey, they just happen in the sleep you know and i'm aware of them fingers just the muscle memory is all there and it just plays and it's and so I'll use that just to get over that first.
0: Well I mean that's that's really a great way to improve that first performance, but also to lessen the anxiety. Yeah. Because like you said, you're most comfortable with those two songs or that song. I'm constantly amazed by people like Beppe um, or I mean, I use the example of Red Skelton. You remember Red Skelton, the comedian? Sure do. I was talking with my son the other day, and uh, we were talking about nerves and things like that and getting up to uh, speak publicly. He's an attorney, and he's he has stage fright. He's wonderful when you see him speak, and he looks so at ease, and he's dying a thousand deaths while he's doing it. But I interviewed Art Linkletter for a television show I was co-hosting at one point in time, and I said, do you have any you know, famous friends, people that have been... And he goes, oh, yeah, Red Skelton is a very close friend of mine. He said, interesting fact, two facts about Red Skelton. And I loved Red Skelton as a kid. We used to watch him, you know, Gertrude and Heathcliff. And I, I try to, once a year, around the 4th of July, watch the YouTube of him doing the Pledge of Allegiance. I think everyone should hear him do that. He does it so wonderfully, explains it from his perspective. But Art Linkletter said two things about the red skeleton. He says, one, he always, he doesn't, didn't trust banks. So at any given time he'd have 20 or $30,000 in cash on him. He used to carry it around. The other thing he said, you know, as comfortable as he is on stage, when you see him, he's deathly ill right up until the time he actually steps onto the stage. And he's been, he'd been performing for, you know, 50 years plus. Mm-hmm. So it makes me feel a little bit better when I hear stories like that or what you just said. Yeah. So that, you know, I'm not alone in that.
1: So that, that works for me too. I, I always thought, you know, like you and other players who've done this for so long, kind of go up and do it. And no hassles. like, it's nice to know there's a little bit of butterflies going on somewhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I don't know if you did sports as a kid, but I remember a coach telling me one time when I was before an event, and I think it was track or it could have been gymnastics. I don't really recall what. And I said, I'm so nervous. And he said, that's a good thing to a point. He mm-hmm. says, because your your adrenaline is moving and, and so forth. He says, you probably, if you can channel it, you perform better than if you just go in lackadaisly. So I'm a firm believer in that, in live performing, playing guitar and singing.
1: Yeah, that's a good thought.
0: Now, as far as singing, because we're going to finish up our conversation here in a second, the, but, um, after you and I close off our phone call, I'm going to play the song song for Tom. And, um, I want to play it for two reasons. One, because people can hear your, you singing because we've just played instrumentals. And I, I, based on what I heard in your CDs, which I need to get back to you, you tend to be more uh, an instrumentalist rather than a a singer. But the other thing about that song is it's almost like... It says song for Tom, but it's almost a song for Ed in regard to why you play guitar. If I'm reading the lyrics uh, properly. Um, Is that... you talk about how it's your friend and so forth. Is that, is that true?
1: Yeah. I think it was a double, it, it had a, ended up having a double purpose.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: As you said, and Tom was the one that got me started in the guitar. And obviously the guitar has been playing, has been a big piece of things, but it also was a way of me dealing with the fact that he passed away. So unexpectedly, Ah. Uh. And he was my best friend I'm from grade school uh, we own sailboats together families vacation together um he often he introduced me to, to my wife um, and uh, he got me involved in, in many things still we still backpack and hike and uh, I was involved in scouting for years as a result of, of all that and so i um, So the song was about him, but it was also helping me deal with that that situation.
0: Sure. Well, that that's a wonderful way to uh, to end our conversation, and wonderful setup for the song itself. So, Ed, I want to thank you again for joining me on the podcast. I've been wanting to to have you on the podcast for a long time, but of course, in the past two two and a half years. There's been so little we've been able to do. It's been wonderful lately to be able to sit with you out in front of the coffee coffee shop and then uh, to see people again. And it rekindled my interest in, in having you on the show. So thank you so much for doing that.
1: Well, thanks for asking. I, uh, this was definitely a real treat for me.
0: Well, and it will go live sometime today. I may not have enough time this afternoon. I've got a, a couple of things I have to take care of, but I'll try to get it up. And um, so check back on the on the, on the site. And, um, or I may even text you and just say, Hey, it's live to let you know, but it'll definitely be sometime today. And anybody listening who lives in the greater Frederick, Maryland area, if you're not doing anything tomorrow evening, uh, idiom brewery is on East Patrick street. Um, it's on your way to the fairgrounds. It's on the right-hand side. And, uh, that, that starts at what time Ed
1: uh, signups are at five 30 and play six, typically
0: nine o'clock now. Okay. Well, if, if those of you listening, if you're in the Frederick area and you want to hear Ed and other performers, uh, check out Idiom Brewery on East Patrick Street tomorrow, the 5th of April, and then every Tuesday, because it's once a week, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and then, of course, uh, check the local listings for, you know, other open mics and, and performances. And again, Ed, thank you so much. We will connect once we finish the show so I can get these CDs back to you. Okie doke. All right. Well, listen, you have a wonderful rest of your day.
1: You do the same.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks, Ed. Bye-bye. That was Ed Hauser, and uh, a nice man, and I've enjoyed speaking with him. And here is his song for Tom.
3: arm or a hand Connects me to my wife Others in my life In joy and in strife A good old friend To early teenage days As friendship formed Past high school halls In and out of college dorms Church groups and new jug bands Hiking trips and backs of vans, forest and in the sand the sun and the storm Kids, they came along This instrument within also grew and stayed strong Being born, being raised, celebrations, special days Supporting its way continued on The guitar is part of who I am attention of myself sometimes a good old friend who sparked start to this big piece of my heart a gift he did impart my friend Tom the songs in memory of him tribute to a friendship and a tribute to him who gave us so much, so much and so willing goodbyes gracing each other wiping tears from our eyes but each time this guitar rings with every smile that it brings we'll be on the wings of my friend Tom the songs in memory of him a symbol of his friendship and when we look within give to us we a trust to keep giving this guitar
0: Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by me, Todd, Middle Initial C. Walker, at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.